welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. Greetings, I'm your host Nick Mather, and in this episode, I speak with Dr. Christopher Ives, author of Zen on the Trail and Meditations on the Trail. In our conversation, we discuss the spiritual aspects of hiking, including hiking as mindfulness, hiking as pilgrimage, and the ritual nature of hiking. We talk about the possibility of nature as a teacher and the lessons it might have for us. We also discuss how hiking can help deconstruct dualistic thinking and provide a sense of transcendence by embedding us back into nature. Christopher Ives is a professor of religious studies at Stonehill College in Massachusetts. In his teaching and writing, he focuses on ethics in Zen Buddhism and Buddhist approaches to nature and environmental issues. He is author of several books, including Zen Awakening in Society, Imperial Way Zen, Zen on the Trail, and the recently published companion book, Meditations on the Trail. Christopher is also on the editorial board of the Journal of Buddhist Ethics. So, Christopher Ives, thank you so much for being here today. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing great. A little hot here in Boston, but it's wonderful to have this chance to have a conversation with you, Nick. Yeah. Is it is it too hot to hike? A little toasty. Yeah, I may just yeah. stay uh, at home and stay well hydrated today. Yeah, that's a good idea. I, I wanted to start with the hiking. Uh, you're an avid hiker. And my understanding reading your books is not only have you hiked through, you know, various mountain ranges in the United States, but also in Japan and in the Himalayas. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Okay. Is there any specific hike or trail that has special meaning for you or that stands out for you? Do you have like a favorite hiking spot? I think in terms of nostalgia, it may be a trail in southwestern Massachusetts called Race Brook Trail. It's a little spur trail that goes up a ridge and joins the Appalachian Trail there in the corner of Massachusetts. And that might be a favorite because I grew up in northwestern Connecticut in a little town called Litchfield. My dad was the scoutmaster, so from the time I was a little kid, younger than age 11, before I became an official scout, I was the mascot and spent a lot of time with my dad, my older brothers and older kids who were scouts, uh, hiking in that corner of the state along the Appalachian Trail and up that Race Brook Trail. And it's a gorgeous little trail with several waterfalls and the classic hemlock, moss, fern, sort of enchanted ravine aesthetic of certain spots in New England. And I just have a lot of good memories of going up there as a little kid and then with friends in high school and even in recent years, a couple of times hiking up that way. Um, and there are other spots, but that that is one favorite from my youth. Okay. And so it seems like you had this love of hiking instilled in you in a very young age. Yeah, I grew up uh, on a country road there in that town of Litchfield. And across the street was a private school and down behind that private school was a river valley. And if you can imagine a river valley that is forested on both sides, maybe about two miles wide and about five miles long up to uh, a road that was north of where I live, uh, almost like a 10 square mile state park 
that was only used by my brothers and me. We go down there fishing, sometimes exploring, building tree houses, playing hide and go seek. And so I grew up with easy access to this wonderful place in New England and spent a lot of my youth down there at what we called the river, playing around and uh, again, fishing, swimming, exploring, climbing trees. And because of that, I didn't learn how to ride a bike until about fourth grade. I was always running off with a fishing pole rather than jumping on a bicycle. Yeah, I had a somewhat similar experience. Uh, I remember uh, I didn't learn to ride a bike until I was older either. Uh, but I remember there was um, a lot of farmland, but creeks, you know, and going to the creeks and catching crawdads and things like that. And it seems like this is a an experience that a lot of children don't get now, uh, which I've read is pretty detrimental to them. Since I have you here and you're a practitioner and a scholar of Zen, especially since I wanted to discuss your book, Zen on the Trail, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit, and I hope you're not too upset about this. You know, I think that Zen has been one of the more popular forms of Buddhism in the U.S., uh, especially in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I think a lot of that had to do with people like Alan Watts and D.T. Suzuki and, you know, Allen Ginsberg. And, and I know that there were some misperceptions at that time about Zen, but now when you hear about Zen, it is usually as a, almost like an adjective or, you know, a synonym for, you know, chill or relaxed. So I wanted to ask you, what's Zen? You know, how are you using the term in the title of your book? Yeah, great question. We do have a lot of popular images of Zen and you're right. The term is often used as an adjective. Uh, my home is very Zen or the party was very Zen, my walk on the beach. When I think about it, I think about that tradition starting in China in the sixth century, spreading to places like Korea and Japan and then beyond. And being a scholar of Zen and someone who lived for a long time in Japan and practiced there, often what I'm thinking of are traditional forms of Zen, which as you know, centered to a large extent on monastic practice and the rigors of Japanese monastic practice uh, in the Zen tradition are quite different from the sort of laid back, easygoing notion of Zen that a lot of people have in the West. Coming off of, for example, some of the beats like Ginsburg and popularizers like Alan Watts, some of the people I was reading when there weren't that many books about Zen in the early 70s, when I was a high school and college student. And yeah, you're right. A lot of the uh, image of Zen you get from there is all about spontaneity and tricksters and dropping out and just you know letting it rip in some kind of hippie happening. And a lot of Japanese Zen masters were very concerned about that and presumably still are insofar as the kind of spontaneity that Zen might talk about comes out of years and years of practice, uh, rigorous monastic practice. And so when I think about Zen, yeah, in terms of the practice, I'm thinking about traditional forms of Zen, sustained practice over many years. And if I were to use the term Zen or you know, what is Zen, um, usually what I'm doing is thinking of, yeah, a system of practices that aim among other things at helping us extricate ourselves from that normal 
fixated positional sense of self over and against the world and that mode of experience that goes with that, the Zen, as you probably know, often refers to as a dualistic mode of experiencing. I'm here and that is over there, subject, object. And in large part, what the tradition is trying to do is to look at how that fixation as a separate self runs contrary to the Buddhist metaphysics where any kind of self is relational and interactive in this processive energy field we call reality as opposed to being a separate entity with clear boundaries that only secondarily enters into relationship with every with other things so in some respects of course what zen's trying to do is to wake us up to how reality is constituted but at the more spiritual or religious level like in other forms of buddhism what zen's trying to do is to liberate us from that self-attachment as that, that sense of being a separate, fixed and fixated self over and against other things and help us realize our embeddedness in the world, in nature, realize that we are profoundly interconnected, what Thich Nhat Hanh refers to as interbeing, and wake up to the fact that we are not primarily separate entities, but we are part of a larger whole, and yeah, at the same time, being distinctive individuals, you're Nick and I'm Chris, make no mistake. And that's partly what Zen's getting at with non-duality. It's not that everything is one in some sort of amorphous energy or ball of light or something, nor are we totally separate like balls on a pool table, but rather we are embedded in this larger system, which takes various forms whether it's Nick, Chris, your microphone, my laptop, whatever. And so in many ways, what Zen's trying to do is to liberate us from what goes along with that sense of being a separate self. You know, what traditional Buddhism will sometimes call greed, ill will, and ignorance, the three poisons, these three detrimental mental states, which are seen as the cause of dissatisfaction or suffering. And so in that way, I see Zen as a religious tradition, as a rigorous set of path, uh, practices that really do aim at a kind of liberation, or if we want to use terms that other religions use, a kind of salvation, uh, liberating us from that normal self-identification, which by extension also makes us think that I am the separate thing that will die at a certain point in the future. I'm freaked out about that. I'm trying to overcome that. And in a sense, what Zen is doing is not solving that problem, giving us some sense of the afterlife or heaven or whatever, but in a sense is dissolving that problem because the problem posits or presupposes a separate entity called Chris Ives, as opposed to looking at how I am always part of a larger whole and how can I wake up to that as opposed to save my butt as a supposed <laughs> individual. And yeah, a lot of that seems to it features large in the uh, Zen on the trail uh, and this idea of that hiking in a way, uh, one of the things you're uh, doing is trying to demonstrate that it can help us kind of eradicate that non-dualism. And it seems like it is in the sense of kind of deconstructing, especially this dualism of uh, self and nature. 
and seeing ourselves as separate from nature. How can, how can we uh, do that? How can hiking or being out in nature help us realize that we are nature and that that duality is kind of illusory? Yeah. Before I speak directly to that, one thing I find interesting, Nick, is how sometimes people who are avid hikers who know nothing about Buddhism report some similar mental states, some similar experiences to what some of your listeners may have experienced in meditation. In other words, the act of hiking, very similar to the act of meditation, where you pour yourself into the breath, what Zen master Dogen in the 13th century in Japan called gujin, this practice of giving yourself completely to the action at hand, pouring yourself into it as a way to let go of our entrapment in our obsessive thinking and worrying. Uh, as we all know, we weren't born with an on-off switch where we can just go from worrying, flip the switch, and then we're in a you know, very tranquil state of mind. But what we can do is redirect our attention and focus on, for example, our breathing and meditation, give ourselves to that. And I think there's something about the physicality of hiking and the breath that's similar to the physicality of meditation, where when people are out on the trail, there is, I think, a, a process that happens naturally, which is the person giving herself to step, 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 and breath, 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 pouring yourself into, in many cases, grunting up the trail, maybe with a 10-pound pack or a 30-pound pack. And I think there's also something about the rhythm of walking while on the trail. And yeah, in terms of your core question, how does that facilitate some sort of recognition of a connection to nature? In many ways, as we know, when we're outside, whether it's hiking, kayaking, sitting on a beach, the more we're out there usually, unless you know there's a nasty storm or something scary happens, is the mind usually just by being out in nature does start calming down does start quieting down and that opens up the mind in some respects to be filled by what you're experiencing whether it's the beauty of the waves breaking you know on your beach in malibu or the beauty of a sunset and meditation hiking other activities sometimes have that effect of calming the mind down and you know as zen would say rather than me sitting here looking at the sunset over there in that dualistic mode or thinking about it, commenting about it to the person who's sitting next to me on the blanket on the beach, that sense of the calmer emptied out mind being filled by the sunset. And in those moments, there isn't a felt sense of separation. It's just boom, glorious sunset, boom, riding the wave, boom, walking up the trail. Um, and in that respect, yeah, hiking like meditation can help us slip out of being stuck in our heads. Um, also, the other thing about hiking, of course, is when we're out there, uh, we do feel closer, not just through um, walking through it, but you know, through our sense experiences, really tuning into what's going around us. Um, you know, interacting with the mosquitoes, getting scraped in the leg when a branch, you know, rubs against you as you go up the trail, uh, being out there, yeah, peeing, and then getting water out of a stream and purifying it. In that way, plugging yourself into the hydrological cycle 
by drinking and peeing and perspiring and uh, our act of breathing, realizing that as I walk along the trail, each time I breathe in, I'm breathing in an offering from the trees around me. And as I exhale CO2, in effect, the trees are breathing that in and utilizing it for photosynthesis and then releasing oxygen back to me. And so in many ways, yeah, we can tune into being plugged into that exchange of gases that's always happening. And I think just over time, as people spend time out in the woods or on the desert, on the beach, um, as a lot of us find, even if you're not trying to meditate, um, there is a greater sense of being part of something larger and not just simply appreciating beauty, but feeling you're a part of something quite spectacular um, and quite amazing. Yeah, it, it, I like uh, one of the meditations that's in uh, Meditations on the Trail. Uh, you actually have a couple of them. One that speaks to that idea of just stopping for a moment and taking in all the sense data, which I, you know, what's really interesting to me is that you had also mentioned the, this kind of spontaneity that occurs almost naturally doing this. And so I'm thinking of my own experiences here. I began about I don't know, about eight years ago or so, hiking a trail every Friday. And I hiked the exact same trail, uh, weather and fires permitting. And one of the things I've noticed, and when I was reflecting on this, is that I'm doing a lot of the things that you talk about just kind of naturally. You know, I have that moment of stopping, you know, and just taking account of all my senses. At one point on the trail, I will also stop. And um, I got this from Joseph Campbell. It's like um, beauty before me, beauty behind me, beauty to the left of me, beauty to the right of me. I walk the beauty path. And I, I found that over this eight year period, my hikes have become completely ritualized. And so one of the questions, I know I'm kind of veering off here, but one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, can nature be a teacher? You know, if it produces these sort of spontaneous experiences, is nature teaching us? Yeah, I think it is. And then the question is how, mm -hmm. uh, in what way? Traditionally in Buddhism, you will find a lot of talk from early Buddhism straight through the present about the advantages of going out into nature. Uh, a lot of people, when we got you know, talking earlier about popular notions of Zen, you know, often people have this image of hermits alone up in the mountains of China and Japan, you know, communing with nature. And you know, that was an element, though that was you know, in effect a minority practice. Uh, most Zen as it's been practiced in Asia was not done in hermitage in the mountains. It was done, you know, in communities. But in many ways, you'll find that in some cases, that history of um, what someone once called the hermit strand of Buddhism has to do with being out in nature is good because there are fewer distractions, fewer temptations. But you also find and you see this in Japanese Buddhism, yeah, nature is a teacher in terms of basic Buddhist uh, doctrines like impermanence. Mm -hmm. To be out into nature is to be attuned to the changing of the seasons, uh, to the changing level of water in the stream, depending on how much rainfall has happened 
you know, higher up the drainage or whatever. And so you'll find talk about, yeah, nature teaching you how to um, tune into impermanence or just offering examples of that. Dogen somewhat cryptically uh, talks about how mountains and waters preach the Dharma. Mm. And then the question is, in what way are they preaching or teaching, you know, the core teachings of the Buddha? And one thing that I look at in my own analysis of that, and again, it's fairly cryptic and, and scholars and practitioners don't all agree, but it's something that I talk about in both of the books, uh, something I've been thinking about also in my scholarly writing is what Dogen calls Genjo, um, which is something you can translate as manifestation. I like to translate it as presencing. Mm. And one thing I find, you know, partly what Zen and other forms of Buddhism are trying to get us to realize and embody in our practice is a way of being present um, in the present and with presence. Um, and that's not just a psychological thing in terms of, yeah, getting out of our worrying and being fully in the now or fully in the moment. Um, ethically, it also has to do with being present to those who are suffering, those who may need someone to listen to them. Um, the whole idea of the bodhisattva, the kind of saint figure in Mahayana Buddhism, a lot of that is simply being present and doing deep listening. Um, for example, Kannon, uh, some people refer to Kannon as this East Asian goddess, Guanyin in China. Uh, as you may know, the two characters, um, Kannon in Japanese or Guanyin in Chinese, mean discerning the sound, uh, discerning basically you know, the sound or the cries of suffering. And so in many respects, you know, I think what mountains and rivers are doing as a, a teacher out there in nature is to use Zen language, how they are presencing themselves, being fully there in their vibratory suchness as a kind of model for us about how, I, how we may show up, not in our riverness or in our mountainness, but are in our humanity, our humanness with a kind of full presence in the moment, again, paying attention, being present in the present with presence. Um, and in that respect, I think, you know, what Dogen's getting at is nature not only teaches about impermanence, um, but also teaches us a way to sort of show up in the world, a way to be present. And uh, in some respects, yeah, what we're doing out in nature is as the bees do their thing, the mountain does its thing, the sun does its thing, all of these things are manifesting or presencing in their vibratory reality. And I think in hiking, sometimes we get in touch with how we too are out there as an animal in that watershed, in that um, ecosystem, yeah, manifesting ourselves as well. A little cryptic, but uh, I think that is one way that Zen would see nature as at least offering a role model, if not actively teaching us. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a question that I'm always interested in is what can we learn from nature? And I, my own experiences match that completely. And I love the idea of being on the trail and being animal and recognizing, and I, I know you wrote about this as well, 
you know, recognizing that we are in the home of other beings. And I think that that kind of demands a sort of respect. You know, we start developing a respect for the natural world. And also when we recognize sort of the dangers that are inherent, you know, that, you know, we can be food, (laughs) Uh, that that also, you know, is something that teaches us respect. And I I noticed that in uh, Zen on the Trail, you actually mentioned several sort of virtues that I think emerged out of your experiences. Um, So, you know, we have reverence and respect and, you know, gratitude and humility. You know, I'm always curious about this question, can nature teach us virtue? And I think, you know, we've kind of discussed this a little bit. But I'm also kind of curious if you can think of any other virtues that nature might teach us or that hiking might teach us. Yeah, I think one of the themes that is there in Zen on the Trail and at least explicit or implicitly in Meditations on the Trail is the whole question of how people not only are in many cases disconnected from nature, at least in their minds, thinking nature's over there or out there and I'm over here, that sense of disconnection, which ultimately is fallacious, we're always embedded in nature. Mm. And the other thing that I'm speaking to as someone you know, in his late 60s who's been out in the woods a lot for a, a fairly long time is the recent emergence of um, extreme sports and mm. peak bagging and a lot of what goes along with that you know, people uh, setting speed records through hiking the Appalachian Trail or speed records, um, you know, free soloing up El Capitan in the Yosemite Valley. And what I see is, you know, one of the uh, teachings of nature, yeah, in some respects, when we're not on the top of the food chain, we're out there, we're not the apex predator, that may be the grizzly bear or the cougar, who knows. And just in terms of, yeah, getting beaten back by the weather, or, you know, being uh, knocked back by a very steep portion of trail with switchbacks or very steep ascent late in the day. There are various things out in the world when we're out in nature that humble us. Mm. And if we're not humble, as you know, often we get into a lot of trouble. And so what I'm interested in is how being out in nature, especially with a certain mindset, provides a certain foundation for a lot of virtues. And I'll talk about a few of those in a second, but how we can be in nature. And this is in part what I was doing in the Zen on the Trail book is offer a kind of spirituality of hiking as an alternative, not only just to the extreme sports of how quickly I'm gonna summit Mount Washington or Mount McKinley, or how many peaks I'm gonna bag today in my Grand Teton, you know, traverse there in Mm. Wyoming, but rather shifting from doing, doing, doing that kind of drivenness, which often, you know, gets into certain bragging rights about how quickly you summited or how many peaks you bagged a certain day. It seems like it's ego. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, going out into nature is to build up the ego through this doing, doing, doing a kind of drivenness, maybe trying to prove something to yourself or to others as opposed to being out in nature as an opportunity to simply be. Now, not that the two are exclusive. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about, especially with the Zen approach to hiking, is getting that sense of being in nature 
through activity. I'm not advocating you know, hike in a mile and then just sit there for a few days. Right. Um, it is an active kind of practice, but basically the orientation is to be in nature as nature, like you were saying, Nick, you know, tuning in with your senses, paying attention to what's happening around you and really plugging in as a way to simply be in nature, even while doing certain things, as opposed to doing being the main mode with the ego drivenness and all. And I think when we can approach the hike that way, this is a chance to just be fully there, tuning in, uh, being present to nature in nature. Yeah, that may only get me a half mile up the trail. I might find a beautiful spot and choose to spend the day there rather than doing the 10 miles to the summit or the 20 mile loop or whatever on the hike. And I think once you get that attitude where I just want to be here, I'm, I'm trying to let go of that you know, ego drivenness, that sets you up for, yeah, a mindset of humility, a mindset of gratitude, a mindset of reverence, um, a mindset of paying attention, however you construe mindfulness, um, a mindset of generosity. I'm here to be with my friends. I'm not here to compete with them. Here, have some of my trail mix. Here, let me lend you my extra fleece layer. You look chilled here on this windy ridge. And so in many ways, yeah, that kind of letting go of that ego-oriented, I want to prove something, I want to do something gnarly, and seeing this as a chance to let go of some of that drivenness and really be in that place and savor the beauty, savor the simple moment of feeling my body walking up a trail. Um, or maybe, yeah, it's a trail where I'm there in my wheelchair, um, moving through the woods on a wheelchair, maybe on crutches, maybe being helped by others. But whatever we're doing to move through the forest, to really be there savoring that as a kind of end in itself, rather than a means to a certain end, like completing a 20 mile loop or a through hike of the Appalachian Trail or summiting, yeah, Pike's Peak or whatever. It just makes sense to me also to be, you know, hiking, you're, you have to be mindful in many ways. I mean, you know, my mom used to say, you know, I li we lived in Colorado for a long time and she was like, well, yeah, if you don't pay attention, you can just fall off a cliff. And here my, my approach is more, you know, if I'm not being mindful, you know, there are a lot of rattlesnakes around here and uh, it, it, and it always boggles my mind to see the people who are just not paying attention at all. And I've seen a lot of squashed lizards and things like that. And it always kind of breaks my heart. One of the other sort of virtues that I think you talked about in uh, the book is, and not necessarily one that is taught by nature on the trail, but it's part of the preparation and that simplicity, you know? And when I read that, you know, uh, I heard Thoreau shouting in my, you know, my, the back of my mind, you know, simplify, simplify, simplify. Uh, so I was wondering if you could say some more about simplicity on the trail and also in connection to the human relationship with the natural world. Yeah, I think the simplicity mainly has to do with possessions, of course, 
And, you know, as we all know, if you're out on the trail and you want to bring something along, you're carrying it, you're mm -hmm. adding weight to your pack. And one thing I just find intriguing is how when we do go out, yeah, we are really stripping things away, whether it's to the 10 essentials that a lot of people talk about is the things you should have with you when you go on a day hike um, or, you know, added essentials on top of those 10 uh, to be able to sleep warmly and safely overnight, uh, prepare food, et cetera, on an overnight trip or an extended backpacking trip. And so the very act of going off for a day hike or a multi-day backpacking trip, you know, requires us to let go of excess. And at one point, I think in Zen on the Trail, I said, um, when we are out there on the trail, it's not so much backpacking, it's almost like home packing. Mm. Uh, we have in our pack, our kitchen, you know, a dish or two and food and a little stove. Uh, we have, for example, our closet or our bureau, our dresser, um, the clothes that are maybe in a stuff sack, um, whatever that might be, you know, your Gore-Tex rain shell, um, a 200 weight fleece jacket for late in the day, maybe a hat, some gloves. And what we have is our medicine chest. We have our toothbrush and toothpaste and any pills and maybe first aid kit. Um, and so all of that, all of those essential things in a home, and we have the roof over our heads, whether it's a tarp, if we're doing ultralight backpacking in decent weather, or maybe a, a two-person lightweight backpacking tent. And so at one point I said I, I would find it interesting someday to empty the contents of a backpacking pack um, for, I don't know, a two or three day trip next to the contents of a middle-class home a typical home here in middle-class America on a front lawn and sort of compare the two. And the other kind of simplifying, of course, and maybe it builds upon the simplification of material objects and possessions when we head out on the trail is just simplifying in terms of distraction. You know, I hope most people, most of your listeners when they hike, yeah, maybe they have a phone for GPS. I hope they don't rely on that because as we know, it's not helpful in the back country. Um, hopefully people have a, a topo map and a compass they know how to use. But in many ways, yeah, when we go out on a hike, yeah, we may have earbuds with a charged iPhone to listen to music, um, but we can't text, we can't get calls, we can't you know, go on social media, we have no internet access. And so I find hiking also, you know, in many ways forces us to simplify in terms of distractions. Maybe we are, we're listening to music. I hope you don't have earbuds in. Uh, I hope you're listening to the sounds around you on the trail, but there too, we're simplifying. It's not like often in our ordinary life where we're sitting at a screen, maybe a laptop and doing something on Facebook while getting texted or something through Instagram on our smartphone next to our computer. And so in that respect as well, yeah, there's a stripping away, a letting go. Um, very similar to what happens in Zen monastic life and Buddhist monastic life in general, where when someone becomes a monk or a nun, they do let go of a lot of their possessions. Most monastic traditions in Buddhism have a set number of possessions a monk or a nun can have, a robe or two, a begging bowl, a toothbrush, a razor, maybe a parasol or an umbrella to keep the sun or rain off the person. Um, but yeah, in a sense, 
enforced institutionalized simplicity and getting on the trail, yeah, makes the hiker, the backpacker do that similar to what a monk or a nun does. And it seems like it would be a very good lesson for especially people living in the, you know, Western industrialized world. You know, you, you mentioned the kind of wanting to have, you know, take out the items in your backpack and compare it to the items of your average middle-class house. Have you ever seen, there was a photo shoot that did that uh, of houses around the world. So you could see what, you know, different cultures, what they possessed. And, you know, of course the houses in the United States, it was just insane, the amount uh, of items in there. Uh, but it seems to me that kind of forcing this, and I don't know if that's the right word forcing, but experiencing this sort of simplicity, even for a short while might be helpful in getting us to at least think, maybe I don't need all this other stuff. If I can get by for a short while on just this, maybe the rest of this is, you know, incidental, not necessary. Yeah, there's an ecological ramification there as well. I think another form of simplicity too, in addition to simple set of possessions, uh, less distraction, similar to less distraction, there's simplicity in terms of doing one thing at a time. Mm, And that, as you know, is a traditional Zen notion. Um, The tradition from day one, even before the advent of the internet and certain devices was advocating for hundreds of years. Yeah, when you do something, do it completely. Um, You may have heard the the Zen adage, if you walk, just walk. If you sit, just sit, don't wobble. Um, Or for some of us, when you wobble, maybe just wobble. Um, And I find when you're out on the trail, yeah, there are fewer opportunities to multitask. And like you were saying, being on the trail demands our attention. We were talking earlier about certain things that hikers might discover that are analogous to Zen, even if they've never been exposed to Buddhism. And I think one of them is you're in an activity that is demanding your attention, or as you said, yeah, you'll fall, you could twist your ankle, uh, who knows what, maybe, yeah, one of those rattlesnakes you see when you hike in California, Nick. And in many ways, there's a simplicity in terms of, yeah, not only realizing maybe I don't need this stuff, not only realizing that multitasking spreads our energy and leaves us somewhat you know, frazzled, but also the simple pleasure of just doing one thing at a time, just walking up the trail, pausing, and just drinking out of your water bottle, eating an energy bar, savoring the view, then yeah, here I am, I'm just setting up the tent, I'm just getting out the stove, and who knows, the ramen noodles for dinner or whatever, and the acts that you need to do in hiking and backpacking, and yeah, in many ways, being out of uh, cell phone (laughs) and internet access, uh, it really supports us simplify are doing where we really can focus on one thing at a time and uh, hiking and backpacking naturally lead us to do that. Yeah. It's very meditational. If I can say that. And, and I really appreciated how in your work you, you do describe hiking as a meditation um, and also encourage this 
like a walking meditation, which I know is a feature in Zen, you know, they have this idea of being, um, and they slow down uh, as they're walking and they're very mindful of their stepping. And that's one of the meditations that you talk about. And I wanted to ask you to maybe speak about it a little bit more. Uh, the exercise is moving at 80%. That's something I do in my personal life and on the trail. And yeah, it's obviously to get us to slow down, but I find that inevitably, and this is probably true for a lot of your listeners, when we live our busy lives, often caffeinated, often multitasking, trying to get various things done, there is a kind of drivenness, a kind of um, extra amped up energy. And I find that uh, that makes it hard sometimes to savor what we're doing, especially when we get into multitasking, where it's hard to concentrate on one thing at a time. And I find that simple little reminder, and as you probably know, Nick, the whole idea of mindfulness, that Buddhist concept, if you look back to the Pali term sati or the Sanskrit term, the analogous term smriti, has a connotation of remembering or keeping in mind, bearing something in mind, not just simply the more popular translations, which are there in the meditation manuals, but translations like bear attention without judgment or simple attentiveness, that is part of mindfulness, but mindfulness also has that nuance of you know, keeping something in mind. And I find that when I dial it back 20% and I move at 80%, it makes me much more able to be present and to, as a kind of reminder, and it does function as a kind of reminder mantra. Sometimes I'll find myself through the day, finding it just kind of welling up in my consciousness, 80%, uh, again, as a kind of mindfulness, a kind of remembering. And then I try to keep it in mind or bear that in mind, again, as a kind of mindfulness. And what that in turn lets me do is to slow it down and make it easier to pay attention to what I'm doing and to savor that, to be more, as I was saying earlier with that idea of Genjo, presence myself, be more present in the present moment, which is another aspect of mindfulness. And so the 80% rule, yeah, it helps me get aware of when I'm hurrying and amped up. It helps me be more present. And in many ways, I get more done. I often say this to my students, if you try to live a day doing everything at 80%, you might think you'll get 20% less done. But what you may find is as you slow it down and pay more attention and savor what you're doing, you may actually do more or you'll find that what you do accomplish will have a greater, what, completion. You won't do a half-baked job of it. Or you may find that you added a little bit of you know, aesthetic touch, you did something more beautiful in some sense, and you probably enjoyed it more because you were savoring it more in the moment rather than just zipping around like we often do. Absolutely. It's um, something that I've tried to instill as well is doing one thing at a time. Uh, because when, it, like you said, when I try to do too many things, everything's just half-assed. So I wanted to ask you about the subtitle of Zen on the Trail, which is Hiking is Pilgrimage. 
And I was wondering if you could discuss that a little bit. How, in what way is hiking like a pilgrimage? Yeah, this actually in part connects to and overlaps with a course I've been teaching. As you know, from your own background in religious studies, a lot of us who are religious studies professors around the country and maybe around the world, and maybe your listeners who have attended this or that college or university, a standard requirement in a lot of institutions is a kind of introduction to religion course. It's there in the core curricula of many universities and colleges. And for years, I did that as a world religion survey course. And that's typically how these courses are taught at various institutions, looking at Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, maybe some treatment of indigenous traditions, maybe even some treatment of things like Confucianism, Shinto, uh, Zoroastrianism or whatever. And a number of years ago, I decided to thematize it around the theme of pilgrimage rather than just simply marching through the main beliefs and practices of this or that religion and just sort of marching through six or seven religious traditions during the semester. And I did that in part on the assumption or the hope that my students do like to travel, that there is a seeker of some sort in each of my students, even if he or she hasn't tuned into that or they haven't tuned into that. And in that way, make it something that they can connect with if they have a love of travel, if they do see themselves as seeking, if they've resonated with certain stories that involve quests, whether it's Lord of the Rings or whatever. And the way to do that was to bring in pilgrimage, which you know, in a generic sense is a journey to a distant sacred space with certain boons or benefits along the way, whether it's a religious experience, getting close to the sacred, someplace beautiful or powerful, um, certain lessons we learned. And by subtitling Zen on the Trail, Hiking as Pilgrimage, I was in effect flagging that I was trying to describe at least one approach to hiking that wasn't simply, like we were saying earlier, a way to prove something, or I don't know, a way to go out and get some good exercise. And I'm not saying that those other approaches to hiking are bad. I think it's good for people to have that sense of accomplishment when they summit a mountain or complete a 20 mile loop. Um, the question might be just simply how driven are they in doing that or how attached to outcome they were. But by flagging hiking as pilgrimage, I was trying to indicate that the book is about a different approach to hiking as a kind of spiritual practice as connoted by the term pilgrimage, that in going out into the woods, yeah, you are doing things that are parallel to someone heading out to Mecca or to Jerusalem or to Lourdes in Southern France or to Mount Fuji or to certain places like the River Ganges in India, and that you are leaving home, going out into a sort of alternative time and space, maybe in some cases a kind of sacred bubble that people might feel when they're in the back country or even just a half a mile up a trail on a day hike that you are entering a special time and place doing an activity that can be done as a kind of spiritual practice. And in that way, engaging not just in a hike or a workout, or you know, a jaunt to get a good view from the mountain, 
but engaging in a kind of spiritual activity akin to religious pilgrimage. Yeah, and it's, you know, that idea, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because it, again, it was something that I found that just sort of arose in me spontaneously, you know, and uh, you, you, you do talk about this a little bit in terms of like at the beginning, you know, taking a moment to recognize that you are crossing a threshold, you know, and, you know, the hike that I do, I hike back to this old uh, forest service dam. that has got like a waterfall on it. And there is, you know, there's the beginning of the trail where I'm like, okay, now I'm on the trail. But right before getting back to this area, there had always been this uh, burnt out tree. It was lying on the ground and it always kind of looked like a um, alligator to me. And I immediately began thinking of it as the guardian of the threshold. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, as soon as I passed that, I was entering into the sacred grove. And it just amazed me how that just kind of spontaneously came about. And, you know, you also mentioned like a ritual at the end, taking a moment to honor, you know, where you've been and what you've done. And I do that too. I stop. I, it's like, I feel like I'm, you know, old school pagan. Well, there is something primal there. And I'm not necessarily a Jungian, so I don't normally yeah. talk in terms of archetypes, but there does seem to be something archetypal about whether it's, you know, the mountain gate or simple gate in a Buddhist monastery, the threshold, you know, the doorway, um, you know, what's there, I forget what's there in uh, C.S. Lewis's, you know, Chronicles of Narnia, were they passing through what, some opening behind it was the dresser in the closet yeah. or somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that sense of, yeah, I'm now passing through some kind of threshold into a different kind of space. And as you may have picked up on, it's, it's there more in Zen on the trail than in the companion meditations on the trail. Uh, but one thing I was always taken with from the time I was an undergraduate way back in the early 1970s at Williams College here in Massachusetts was the theory of ritual process by the anthropologist Victor Turner. And he talks about how a lot of rituals, especially initiation rites, and he and his wife, she's a writer as well, actually applied this to religious pilgrimage. A lot of these processes involve three stages. And the first is separation from normal social life with all our roles and responsibilities and stressors and how we depart from that. And then yes, enter this margin uh, somewhat apart from normal society what he calls the liminal state or the liminal stage. And that actually comes from a Latin term that means threshold, mm -hmm. um, demarcating that line of boundary between normal social life with all of the stressors and rules and hierarchy and status. And this ritual state, for example, a group of Aboriginal boys or girls being in the outback being initiated into adulthood or a person on a several day backpacking trip or a person on a day hike, how you separate from normal social life and yes, pass through a kind of threshold into this liminal state, a kind of sacred time and space, a sacred bubble where interestingly for Victor Turner, a social scientist, 
a lot of social markers, the hierarchy, the pecking order drop away. For example, when people go on the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, you know, several million people, and at least with the men, all the men wear two simple white pieces of cloth, virtually no other possessions over the several days of the Hajj. And in that moment, they're wearing uniform clothing, they're in a state of homogeneity in terms of appearance, and any sense of who is the investment banker versus the unemployed graduate student, um, you know, all sense of social markers drop away and there's a sense of shared humanity, what Victor Turner calls communitas, where our normal sense of difference drops away and we're all there as part of the, for example, Islamic community, or we're all there with our friends hiking grunting and sweating and getting blisters and in a sense equal in this liminal stage. And then yes, as you just said, Nick, at the end of that, the third stage is returning back into society. He calls it re-aggregation or reincorporation, plugging back in though you've been transformed. In the case of the Hajj, you come back to your community, whether it's Malaysia or South Africa or New Jersey, with a title that designates you as someone who's completed the Hajj, but you're also coming back transformed by the experience. Who knows, with deeper faith, a greater understanding of Islam, just like a person comes off the trail with certain lessons, certain benefits after being out there for the day hike or the several day backpacking trip. And so, yeah, partly that whole idea of hiking as pilgrimage is me in the back of my mind thinking about how Victor Turner and his wife, Edith Turner, talk about the ritual process, including pilgrimage, including initiation rites, having these three stages with a clear, in between stage one and two, a clear marker that I'm leaving society, I'm now in this special time and place, I'm passing through the threshold, the yeah. gate. <laughs> that magic yeah. door. Now, in, in, in that model, when someone's in the liminal space, is there, I would imagine there's an encounter with the sacred, but I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not this sacredness is also a sense of transcendence. And what I'm thinking is, you know, in your books, you, you really focus on here and now. And I think that's part of, you know, that Zen, you know, it's the here and now. And it seems to me that that's so different than the history that we have, especially in the United States, that connects spirituality to the natural world. You know, there's, you know, in the essay, Nature, Emerson describes himself as that transcendental all-seeing eyeball. And you know, John Muir, uh, you know, he's grounded in wilderness, but he also seemed to have a tendency to focus on transcendental experiences. So I, I was curious if Zen or the, you know, the, the hiking as a Zen practice, if there is also a sense of transcendence, is, is the transcendence in the present moment? H how would that play out? Yeah, that's a very interesting point. A lot of people make comparisons between Muir there in the high country of uh, the Sierra 
you know, up and around Yosemite um, or Emerson nearby where I am right now in Concord, Massachusetts. And in some cases, yeah, you will find uh, whether it's transcendentalist in that 19th century Concord sense of, you know, Emerson, Thoreau and others, um, or Muir, yeah, talking about a kind of transcendence that does get into the idea of nature being an avenue to discern certain aspects of the sacred, of God, of the divine. Um, as you probably know, the transcendentalism or the, the transcendent element of transcendentalism with Emerson um, has a lot to do with German philosophy, people like Kant, and more about how the more powerful and interesting experiences involve certain aspects of the mind, certain mental constructs, um, that access to the words, world soul that transcends mere sense experience. That's kind of the transcendence that Emerson and the other transcendentalists are talking about is uh, certain forms of cognition, certain structures of experience, um, and certain intuitions that go beyond what the empiricists, people like John Locke were talking about, where all knowledge, all understanding comes from sense experience, from sensory data. And out of that, we learn certain things. Um, yeah, Emerson and others were talking about there are certain mental constructs, certain parts of the mind that transcend mere sensory data. But in either case, whether it's you know, transcendence in the sense that by going out into the Yosemite Valley like Muir did, you sense the majesty of God who created all of that, or you get an inkling of a transcendent reality when you see a spectacular sunset or you stand in awe of Half Dome or some of the other cliffs there in the Valley of Yosemite. The kind of transcendence I'm interested in Zen, and, and this in some respects diverges a bit from Victor Turner's theory. Um, he does talk about one of the features of liminality, in addition to some of the things I mentioned a minute ago, that homogeneity, uniform clothing, uh, humility, the idea of communitas, a sense of equality, brotherhood, sisterhood, shared humanity. He does talk about sacredness. Um, he also mentioned sacred instruction. And in many ways, um, I would surmise that Turner, when he talks about sacredness as a feature of liminality, he is talking about the person in that liminal state getting in touch with, intuiting, feeling directed by some sort of higher being. In the case of Zen, the kind of transcendence, if there is transcendence in the book, what I'm thinking out about more is, you know, transcending our normal thinking, worrying mm -hmm. self, that ego, again, that ego that may be out to prove something, uh, that obsesses about things. And the kind of transcendence I'm thinking of is letting go of that and realizing ourselves, like I said earlier, not as this separate little thing with my reputation, with my drivenness, with my agenda, but transcending that. And this gets back to what we were saying earlier about humility and letting go and simplifying. And you transcend that, not in the sense of popping up and out of here or getting in touch with something that's you know, at a higher level reality that created all of this, but transcending that stuckness in 
our normal drivenness, our normal, what, self-centeredness and realizing in that transcendence of that, how we are fully embedded in this larger system as opposed to being a separate little ball on the pool table to use that uh, metaphor, realizing we're more like the wave on a surface of the ocean. We're part of this larger whole that's not totally amorphous. The whole does take specific individual forms like the waves. This is partly what uh, Buddhism is talking about with that expression, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, and non-duality. At one and the same time, reality is totally an interconnected whole, but that whole only exists through these various facets. There's no kind of amorphous ocean that is devoid of the waves on the surface of it or the forms it's taking as it nestles into a coral reef or a bay. And so the kind of transcendence I'm thinking of is actually transcending the ego to realize a profound imminence, a transcendence that is waking up to how we're fully here embedded in this energy field, this system of interconnectedness, this processive reality that Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing, what traditional Buddhism calls, if we translate it, dependent arising. And so in a sense, freedom or liberation from the ego or suffering or the selfish self, the sinful self, if you will, the transcendence involved in overcoming that and finding liberation, intriguingly, involves realizing a kind of imminence realizing our embeddedness in this system as opposed to waking up to a level of reality that's up and above nature. That is, as the expression goes, supernatural, above nature, above the natural existing, I don't know, at another level of reality or up there in heaven. And so if there is transcendence in Zen, it's um, in many ways coming back to reality, coming back to nature, come back to our embeddedness as opposed to getting up and above nature, up and above all of this system of cause and effect, all of the things that scientists and others look at. Um, so it's transcending into uh, imminence, transcending into nature, uh, which is a different way of thinking about transcendence. Maybe we should use another term because of how transcendence usually implies um, something supernatural, right. something right. above nature. But the transcending is more of a transcending of that way of being that gets us into trouble, that sense of being a separate self with our greed, right. our ill will, our ignorance. And so in a sense, we're getting beyond that. Maybe that's a better expression. And the way to get beyond that is to realize, no, I'm not this separate billiard ball on the table, but rather it's more like being a wave on the surface of this ocean or a temporary ever-shifting node in a field of energy, or to use that expression in Buddhism, a kind of vast net, and we're just one knot in the net. Um, that's ultimately the liberating moment. It's not liberating by getting up and out of the world of nature, interconnectedness. Early Buddhism actually did think of nirvana that way. Um, so we could have a whole another hour about that, but um, early Buddhists at least did see nirvana as up and out of the world of samsara, um, a state of 
uh, a permanent state that's an exception to the, the Buddhist teaching of impermanence. Um, and so in early, early Buddhism, yeah, Nirvana was kind of up and out of here. And the world of change, whether it was rebirth, samsara, or the impermanent changing world of nature was seen as a trap. And the last thing you want to do is to go out and connect with nature. Uh, the push was to uh, transcend that impermanent realm of suffering that's nature, society, basically what we experience through our senses here. Thank you so much for that. I think that I know we're getting close to uh, close to the end of our time here, uh, but I, I really appreciate the idea of the embeddedness. And I know that you connect uh, in the books embeddedness and embodiedness. And I think that was something I was thinking about in terms of this transcendence is that there seems to be this attitude of even transcending our bodies and seeing ourselves as, I don't know, these just minds, you know, as, as it were. And it's so important to become embodied at this moment in time. And it gets back to that idea of recognizing our animality and how important that is in our current moment. And I think you're right. At one point, and I think I worded it this way, getting back to our idea of gate or that barrier between you know this and that realm, the profane and the sacred or whatever, um, is the idea that embodiedness is the gateway to embeddedness, to realizing embeddedness. Like you were saying, Nick, and I think you do this if I understood you correctly, when you get out on the trail, using your bodily senses of smell, you know, touch, hearing, sight, and taste to plug into what's happening around you. That is one of the meditations in the book as well. And in many ways, yeah, this relates to what I see as the very physical orientation of Zen. And some of this may not apply to all forms of Buddhism and certainly not to all religions, but the physicality, I mean, sitting there, you know, if you do it the traditional way in the full lotus position, often with physical pain, uh, the idea around the monastery that not only seated meditation or zazen and walking meditation are forms of practice, but chopping vegetables in the kitchen, you know, raking the garden, repairing the roof, you know, cleaning out the latrine, working in the garden. All of these are very physical activities that, again, we give ourselves to. And it's through the physicality that we practice this gujin, this pouring ourselves into the action at hand, which is the way to help us get out of being trapped in our head, in our mind with all that thinking and worrying and plug into this larger system we're part of through our senses, through our labor, through our hiking, uh, or maybe through our dancing, our swimming, our kayaking, and that physical activity. And who knows, maybe there's a little help there from endorphins and dopamine and other things when we exert ourselves physically. But I'm sure a lot of your listeners know that, yeah, when I can go up and I just go for that run or I give myself to, you know, what, building a shed or mowing the lawn, there is something liberating about that. And not only in the sense of feeling more connected to my surroundings when I spend a day weeding in the garden or kayaking along the shore of the lake, but also it's a way to de-stress 
a way to, yeah, enjoy the physicality through that realizing my embeddedness, my connectedness to everything around me. And in the process, yeah, coming back to reality, not being lost in the drama in our heads, being lost in the stress, the anxiety, the drama. Well, the, um, the last thing I'll ask you about, and you kind of hinted at this a little bit when you were talking about, you know, pulling the weeds out of the garden, is that you make a really important point, I think, that the meditations that you offer can be done in a variety of places. You know, they can be done in the backyard, a city park, um, you know, even where weeds and grasses push up through the sidewalk. And I, and I think this is a really important point to recognize we are always in nature, you know, because it seems like we always have this tendency, uh, you know, it gets back to that sort of dualism, humans, nature. Um, but we're always in nature, right? That's in large part getting at the hidden agenda, perhaps, in both of the books. As you mentioned when you introduced me, I've been doing a lot of work in, when I wear my scholarly hat on Buddhism, nature, and environmental ethics. And just as a citizen, as a human being, um, getting involved with certain environmental groups, um, protest actions around the climate crisis in particular, and in part what I'm doing with the two books, and I flag it a little bit in the introduction to the meditations on the trail, is offering this as a way to help people realize exactly what you just said, realize that we are always embedded in nature. It's not that we're in here and nature is out there. And I think that sense of disconnect, and at the very beginning, like this is a nice way to bring it full circle. Uh, you were talking about how people are concerned about kids getting out and having free play or just imaginative time out in nature. That's something that, as you know, is covered in the book, Last Child in the Woods by uh, a fellow named Louvre. And in part, what I'm doing with these books is offering ways for people to more vividly realize, yes, I am part of this system. I am dependent on it for my well-being. What's happening to the planet does affect me. It's not just something over there where there are fires in a different state or flooding in a different country or whatever it might be. And obviously in terms of responding to something like the climate crisis, yeah, lifestyle change is needed, whether it's driving a, you know, a different kind of car, flying less, eating less meat, but also structural change. And that's where it really calls on all of us to become activists, whether it's activism to get some kind of carbon fee and dividend program to internalize the cost of carbon or campaign finance reform to make our uh, Congress less beholden to powerful interests like the fossil fuel industry. But I think one other element there, and it's not sufficient, but maybe for some people it's sort of a starting point, is to support people in realizing they are embedded in nature. They are nature themselves. And to pay attention to what's happening around them, to realize what is happening to our planet, whether things they can see locally or maybe things they're learning about in an indirect way that are happening more globally. And so in part, yeah, what I'm doing with these books is in a very small way, offering some techniques, some practices to help people realize how we are embedded in nature, help people, give them practices to pay greater attention, to tune in through their senses, through their walking, through their breathing, 
to this glorious and beautiful ecosystem, this biosphere we're all part of as maybe a way to support people in, yeah, waking up a bit more to what's happening, appreciate what's happening, appreciate nature more. And through that appreciation, maybe of the beauty of nature by getting out on the trail, that which we often love, that which we often see as beautiful is that which we're more inclined to work to protect. Um, and so that's part of my kind of hidden ethical agenda. Um, I guess it's not so hidden. Again, I think I flag it early on in the book, yeah. but it's my small offering in addition to, uh, yeah, working with my students and my activism. You know, here's a way that may help us realize that we're always connected with nature, even though we're often oblivious of that fact. Yeah, well, it's much appreciated. And, you know, I encourage everyone to read your books. They are very entertaining, very well written. It's not a academic voice at all. Uh, very, very much worthwhile. And I think it um, has a, an important place in environmental literature. So uh, before I let you go, let me ask you uh, what you have coming up. Uh, are you working on anything or... Yeah, actually, there is a manuscript. I was working on it earlier today. And it's interesting. You're just flagging how these two recent books are not in an academic mode. And the book I'm working on, I'll actually be on sabbatical next spring after teaching the fall semester. And in my application for the sabbatical, what I was pitching is basically continuing with a project that is, for lack of a better expression, a kind of Buddhist environmental ethic. More specifically, it's thinking about Buddhist resources for living more simply, engaging in the activism I was talking about a minute ago, a kind of uh, Buddhist sketch or a Buddhist framework for not only greening our lifestyle, but also thinking about activism as a form of spiritual practice. And so it's basically drawing from Buddhist resources to articulate a way of being in this very scary, very challenging moment. And one thing I've been playing with is how much of an academic voice do I write it for an academic audience? And recently I've been thinking, you know, this could be my last book. I don't need to have another scholarly publication to sustain my tenure or to get a good evaluation next time around. Um, it would probably be more fun to write, maybe more fun to read, and maybe even more impactful if I write it in a non-academic way, in a kind of voice like the two books we were talking about today. And so the short answer is yes, the, the project I'm working on now is sketching a Buddhist way of living that is spacious and mindful and simple, close to nature, and engaged in activism in community with others, a kind of Buddhist um, framework for living at this moment, everything from slowing down to 80%, living simply, realizing the nature around your home, plugging into that sense of being part of that system, being part of community, and thinking about how out of all of that as a kind of base camp or a kind of platform, how we might turn to addressing these larger systemic issues, um, working actively to bring about the kind of structural change that needs to happen to really address things like the climate crisis. 
how mere lifestyle change will not be sufficient unless we really do look at our whole political economy, our whole way that power operates in this society. So uh, yeah, that, that's my modest goal. <laughs> <laughs> well, Once sounds... again, I may be biting off more than I can chew. I've done that in the past with other writing projects, but that, that's generally what I'm yeah. doing. Maybe, but it's important work. And, you know, we're in a all hands on deck moment. And I think every voice is important. Um, so I will keep track of that. And uh, when you're finished and it's published, maybe we can chat again. I really appreciate your time and your insights. It's been a joy speaking with you. Yeah. And thank you for having this conversation with me. It was very rich. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate our conversation. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the kind words you said about the book. So thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Oh, and one thing I forgot, how can people find out more about you if they, um, uh, do you have like a website or should they? Yeah, people, uh, I did create a website that uh, came up when I published Zen on the Trail in 2018 and it's com. Okay. And I haven't been as active with that as I'd like to be, but people can email me through that. Or they can just simply, uh, yeah, find me by Googling me and the Stonehill College directory. But I'll just say it's, it's cives at stonehill.edu. So if any of your listeners want to keep the conversation going or connect more directly, um, feel free to email me, everybody. That would be great. I can get to hear what's on your mind and learn from you as well. We all have techniques we do when we get out on the trail or get out in nature and I'd love to learn what yours are. You shared some of yours, Nick, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have techniques, practices, experiences um, that I can learn a lot from. So everybody feel free. It's cives at stonehill.edu. Okay, well, thank you again. I will let you go. Happy trails. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> All right. And that's a wrap on episode five of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Your reviews really do help. And please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. For the time being, I'll be releasing episodes every other week with the goal of releasing them every week in the near future. Also, please consider making a donation via Patreon by becoming a sustaining member or you can make a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find links for both in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace and flourish in all possible ways.